What's up and welcome to your Oscars edition, post-Oscars edition of Nostalgia Pod coming at you Sunday night. Dave Martinson, fresh off that Cali trip. Pat Sheehan, fresh off that East Coast, always. Man, before we jump too far into it, if you are watching us live right now, please hit that subscribe button. But if you are catching us later on, still hit that subscribe button and go to soundcloud.com slash nostalgia pod to find all the ways to listen to nostalgia. We bring you the content all year long, not just right after the Oscars, but we've been building up to this for a while. And we talked on our last podcast, Dave, about how the Oscars had a lot of potential issues and that this show was primed to be a disaster. No host, continuously throwing out ideas of how to change the show, whether it's new awards, cutting categories being broadcast live, not showing all of the best original song nominees performances, and they pretty much backed off on all of those. But the one thing that we said would make this show a definite disaster was if we had a problematic best picture winner, and there was two of them in this field, this Green Book and Bohemian Rhapsody. All those other issues kind of worked themselves out. I, there was no problems with the performances. There was no, you know, most popular picture category. All the categories were presented live. And other than, I think it was like makeup had a terrible speech. They all did a great job with their speeches afterwards. But man, that best picture. Right. Give me your up and down throughout the night. How are you feeling? So I think the lack of a host, which is obviously on everyone's mind from the start, that the show really went off pretty smoothly. Like Queen opening it up, I guess is fine. Kind of funny that like they're going on tour with Adam Lambert, but get your money. This movie made $850 million, so they've never been more famous. It's, it's wild. No Grammys. And then, like, so I guess that's like a weird way to start, but whatever. But then when uh, Tina Fey, Maya Rudolph, and Amy Poehler just start riffing as like a pseudo like monologue, because it was just a longer riff before they actually did their awards, that was well, because that was just funny. You know, and I think that's kind of just the theme of this is whether it was good presenter combos or off-the-cuff stuff like Samuel Jackson's Nick's reference to Spike or their embrace when Spike won. That basic chemistry, that basic humor that a lot of presenters have, whether it's with people in the audience or their fellow pre presenter, really all you need, I think. And this show moved pretty briskly. Like, yes, it took, what, three hours, 15 or so, but I felt it moved really fast. I mean, what, we had the songs, we had the In Memoriam, all those are expected. The very first movies montage in the beginning, which was focused on 2018 movies, and then the Queen performance in the beginning. I think that was really it, apart from awards presentations. So as a result, I didn't feel like any speeches were rushed or cut off, which was good because, uh, again, that's kind of why we're watching this. Mm -hmm. So I thought the whole tenor of the show went really well. It just had an anticlimactic final five minutes. I agree that no host, no problem. I actually think it actually benefited from not having a host because you got to see a little character from the presenters a little bit more Guillermo del Toro at the end I thought was really great Javier Bardem was really awesome when he spoke and like even when Regina King won she kind of tripped going up the stairs like yeah see Chris Evans like step up and like show some personality and I feel like people just kind of felt like because there was no host everybody got to kind of play a part in like making this a sure. show yeah I think that actually worked to their favor I do wonder because like in other years where Queen isn't the subject of a movie or you don't have a Gaga Bradley Cooper performance to be pumping for two hours into the broadcast if they'll be able to go without a host but i do think that this kind of changes the game of you don't need a host to be as involved as they usually are you don't need the skits where they go to 
a theater and they had like the live here's real people <laughs> and famous people together right we're all the same no we, it's good we're good on that it's going to be scaled back a little bit however my rudolph tina fey and amy poehler together like just give them all the hosting gigs like they're just so great together those three but throughout the night i i thought the show went very smoothly and I, the people who won the awards for the most part i couldn't really argue with there were maybe a couple here and there i was disappointed you know minding the gap especially i was pretty bummed at but we kind of knew free solo was making the charge during the award season so it wasn't a huge surprise and like i was hoping first man would get maybe a couple more technical awards but they did get one so <laughs> that's good yeah no no, no <laughs> infinity war though which is like a, a sad byproduct of that award you know but then we get to the end of the night and i guess this is the place i feel like we have to start because green book won for uh, best original screenplay they won for best supporting actor mahershala who was airing the season finale of the show he'll probably win the emmy for this year which is crazy he's just on this amazing yep. run these past three years but then green book out of nowhere at the end we were even texting minutes before we were like okay it's bohemian rhapsody black panther or roma it's gotta be one of those three and yeah. then green book i literally was like holy shit are you serious and that was the thing like last week when we did the predictions episode which obviously no need to watch that now but thank you for everyone who did that did pretty well for us we, we were thinking roma or green book definitely likely i did not think bohemian rhapsody had a chance last week I was starting to question myself when they went four for four on their down ballot awards, plus uh, including Rami. And then Black Panther tonight did really well as well. So I was like, all right, Black Panther probably stepped past Green Book here. Green Book has been quiet. I guess that screenplay award was an early sign. But yeah, it it really came out of nowhere for me. And frankly, I thought the crowd reaction was pretty muted, which uh, is kind of not good. Like everyone's like, oh, no, let's get that. Let's get that La La Land envelope action going again, (laughs) because we've talked at nauseam about the issues with Green Book and how it's. Despite being a, a film that's well made, and uh, which is not something you can say about Bohemian Rhapsody, Green Book, the the movie about racism for old white men to make them feel good, it has a bad message, right? We've talked about this at length, but the fact that it wins after having a relatively quiet night, it won three awards, uh, and like, yeah, like favorite was tied for most noms. I didn't expect favorite to win that much; only won once. But God, I, I, I mean, I was legitimately shocked when it happened. Despite last week, definitely entertained the possibility, but. Throughout the night, I just didn't feel like that's where we were going. I, and frankly, I really thought Rome was going to get it done, uh, which is disappointing because Rome was fantastic. Green Book is not. I felt like especially when Koran got the best director, which we kind of knew was a lock, but I was like, okay, the, the awards are falling in place the way that most of them should be. I mean, Coleman was a surprise, a really pleasant surprise, and that's, yes. that, that's my, my one call that I can really take credit for. I was like, okay, got to be Rome, got to be. And then when Green Book got called, man, it was interesting because I really paid attention to who was in screen. I was watching with my girlfriend, Julia, who hasn't seen the movie. And I've just kind of talked to her about like why this would be a problematic winner. And I said to her, I was like, didn't have the input from, you know, anyone that was black. I mean, Mahershala Ali from all the stories leading up to it seemed to really, I guess, have more of an impact on how the story played out and how some of the scenes played out. But Really, it, it lacked that voice that I think would have brought some more levity to the, the script. And it really just played like Driving Miss Daisy 2, that the white savior type of deal. And she was like, wow, you only have one black person on the screen right now. And it was Octavia Spencer, who was kind of just like in the fray. Mahershala was like, he was like off to the side. He's like, yo, I gotta catch that True Detective finale. I'm off. Like, I'm out of here, dog. And what did Fairley say? Vigo, man. Vigo got this done. Yeah. Without Vigo, we wouldn't be here today. And it's like... <laughs> Dog, you haven't learned anything. Come on, bro. And this is the culmination because, again, 
Those two have equal screen time, but they campaigned it so Vigo would be lead and Marshall would be supporting. That's kind of been under-talked about, but that was also crap. And I guess we should have known. It won a best original screenplay. Most people thought the favorite would probably win that, or maybe Roma would if Roma's going to have a big night. I mean, I really didn't see a winning screenplay at all. You know, even the Vice screenplay, I think, could have won that. So that that was definitely a flag. We, we had all these... uh. <laughs> these false alarms of Bohemian Rhapsody winning for sound stuff, you know? <laughs> Which is also ridiculous. I mean, like, the sound stuff's fine. The editing is egregious. Like, just absolutely... Best film editing is, like, insulting to editors, which is weird because the Editing Guild awarded it. I just don't understand <laughs> why. Like, is it solely because they took over the film from Brian Singer and they, like, pieced together cuts? Is that really what we're voting for? I- it just doesn't make sense because everyone's seen that viral clip of how horrendously made some of these scenes are it's not best editing it's just most editing that's the overworked joke today yeah the point is that Raymond Rhapsody was getting everyone distracted from Green Book's fucking inevitability you know Green Book was surprising but Raymond Rhapsody like I said was rising and so was Black Panther they won for best makeup best costume I think it was uh set design production, production design, design yeah. as well. so that was unexpected and score yeah so they really rising I was like ah maybe Black Panther's gonna get, get this done you know with the way things have been going leading up, I feel like Black Panther would have been like the perfect pick for like to cap off and like really make this award show be a really really good one. And instead, I'm le- I'm left with this bad taste in my mouth. Like ah, Hollywood really still doesn't get it. Like they still rely on these movies that are supposed to make white people feel good about you know being white and like cure that white guilt in some sense. And they they just love it for some reason, and it's really disappointing. I so want to see how the voting went down, and we should be able to see this, because I wonder how close this was. I feel like this has to be probably one of the closest races in recent years. You know, we, we talked at length about Best Picture. Why don't we jump into some of the other awards? What, what surprised you or what stood out to you throughout the night? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned Avengers. Best visual effects going to First Man. I thought if First Man was going to win anything, it would probably be sound editing. With that, Bohemian won both the sound awards, and that's great to see. But, you know, Avengers Infinity War, I was like, oh, damn, I thought they they kind of had that, but... Black Panther won more than we expected. Those are actually Marvel's first Oscars, funny enough. Crazy. Uh, DC won make the Suicide Squad for makeup. <laughs> Good for them, I guess. Not that Disney really needs the help. That was unexpected. I was really happy to see every Best Picture nominee get something, as well as Beale Street and First Man. Yep. I was actually really worried. I was like, oh, fuck. The favorite tied for most nominations at the night and is the only one who doesn't get anything. And then Coleman wins at the very end. I was surprised by that. That was great. But, you know, speaking of the Black Panther moment that was happening when they were winning more awards than we spot, especially score. Like, we were like, no Hurwitz and score. Brattel, Beale Street, he's going to win this, no problem. Mm-hmm. Nope, Gorenson wins for Panther. Crazy. Like, score is a stacked category, but did not see that coming. No. But I was at the point where I was like, oh, shit, maybe shallow doesn't win maybe all the stars wins for original song i got nervous that didn't happen obviously and that was the only word stars born wins the lack of the campaign for first man is one thing but the way star is born really fizzled out this award season it's definitely going to be looked back on because that's a movie that's we know is going to age well and cooper did the singing and the writing and rami did really good karaoke like it's it's going to be crazy to look back on yeah you know there there were so many that i feel like we kind of knew going in Rami won, Regina King, Mahershala, Spider-Verse, Koran. Coleman was such a pleasant surprise, and she showed so much real emotion. I mean, she's given great speeches throughout this award season, but she's just a delight every time she gets behind the mic. <laughs> so please give her more awards just to see what she says. You know, in kind of looking through the ones that surprised me or stood out, you know, the, the first man love I really liked, which won for visual effects. Uh, I had, I think, picked that and hoping it would win for... 
like sound editing or sound mixing, like grabbing one of those. Yeah. Just because it, it really deserved such a good film technically. And that's what we talked about in our review with how good technically this film was, but maybe didn't hit all the marks in terms of crowd pleasingness. The cinema score, I think, was a little bit lower when we talked yep, about it. It was. Spider Verse, I was really happy with. That film, I think, could have even gotten a Best Picture nomination for how much love it's gotten. You had a great tweet about it, too, how it went from being a film I think a lot of people weren't so sure we needed yeah. to being one that really blew up. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy because this was a stacked year. Like, it beat Incredibles 2. When Incredibles 2 came out in, in uh, May, June, whatever it was, everyone was like, oh, fuck, this is fantastic as a sequel, as an action movie, as an animated film, as a Pixar movie of their high standards. This is it. This is everything. And we also had Wes Anderson release an adult animated movie <laughs> earlier in the yeah. year, which is well like the fact that spider-verse comes at the end of the year and which again ad nauseum everyone's discussed so original and triumphant and really spoke to a lot of people it's just crazy and i'm really happy that it got recognized but again we saw this coming because everyone else was giving it the awards too which is you know good for them lord and miller actually got an oscar now you know i think those guys know what they're doing generally speaking i think we can say that safely now it's funny. A lot of the words that we thought were obvious did happen, but man, I, it's funny. I got freaking killed on my ballot, bro. I got nine wrong. I only got 15 out of 24 right. I was like feeling pretty good about most of this. Like I fucking on the back page, on the down ballot. See all these X's, bro? You can't see it. I got fucking crushed. <laughs> <laughs> it was Bohemian Rhapsody and Panther killing me. <laughs> I'm looking through. I mean, yeah, the, the backside was tough. The backside was really tough. I think the, the front was easier, although yeah. I had Roma over Green Book. You know, it's interesting to think about what the legacy of this Oscars will be, you know, because a lot of like a lot of the talk afterwards is obviously about Green Book. And I think rightfully so. You know, you have probably two or three films in there. I think A Star is Born, Black Panther and Roma, obviously, maybe even The Favorite could be put in there and maybe even Black Klansman that I think will age a lot better than that. Vice, I don't think will age that well. Even the Human Rhapsody, I really don't think will age well. I think Rami's win, though I'm super excited for Rami. I think people look back at that and be like, really? Bradley Cooper and Christian Bale and Vice? Crazy, crazy win. I think that the legacy of this Oscars, in a lot of sense, is going to be that for a show that could have gone a lot worse, it wasn't that bad, but the, the final award just really missed the mark. And I really think A Star is Born not getting more love. I really think Adam Driver not beating Mahershala Ali, even though we also love Mahershala, is going to look bad in the long run. I think there's going to be a lot of wins that we're going to be like, huh, this seems a little strange. Although next year when Adam Driver is winning for uh, Kylo Ren, I don't think we'll be too concerned. <laughs> well, it's funny. Mahershala, this is his second win in supporting actor in three years. Obviously, he won for Moonlight. And he's the first black actor to, to win supporting actor twice straight up so good for him obviously crazy but like rockwell being nominated back-to-back years mahershal being nominated once again so quick like those are good performances but they're not like fantastic ones meanwhile like richard e grant campaigned yeah. a lot and i think that that's a performance that will be looked back on fondly for sure and driver like again like he's just like the one of the greats we have right now and we're just gonna look back and say like oh yeah driver got nominated like 30 times and never won until now Similarly, like Glenn Close, she's now 0 for 7. But I think this actually is an interesting moment. We'll see if this sticks, but this could be an inflection point for the career award, the better late than never award coming through. Spike did not win for director over Quaron. Quaron was the better choice. Yeah. Coleman and, in my opinion, Gaga as well were better than Close. Close should have won for Fatal Attraction. She didn't. But that mm-hmm. doesn't mean we should 
award her now for the wife. The movie title wasn't that good, but also her performance was good, not great. There was better ones out there. I think we can consistently pick the best awards. Uh, movie fans will be more appreciative of that, and the awards show age better. But that being said, they also gave it to Green Book. So who knows? <laughs> That's the problem when there's 8,000 people voting on this from all, all walks of movie-making life. You spoke about the awards breakdown. I would love to see the branch breakdown. Who is the biggest supporter of Green Book? We know they won the PGA. The PGA produces a good award. Predicted like I think eight of the last ten. Like it's it's a, it's a very consistent predictor. Who else likes it besides the producers? Because we know the actors really like Black Panther. We know the editors like Bohemian Rhapsody for some reason. Who who was like Green Book's base? Right. Preferential balloting. Maybe that was how it was done. Maybe Green Book was second, third all over the place. I don't know. I think overall the tenor of the show you know went well. I mean. A lot of women won. A lot of firsts happened. The love got spread out. So you know, I'm still happy with it. And Green Book is not Bohemian Rhapsody. Like a Bohemian Rhapsody shouldn't have been in the category, period. So the fact that that didn't win is better. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's actually funny. I was just thinking about what sums up this award show the best. And I actually, like, keep going back to is when Bette Midler performed the song for Mary Poppins. And I turned to... <laughs> My girlfriend, I was like, you know, you have Lin-Manuel Miranda and Emily Blunt, who are like two of the hottest celebrities in the world right now. People, like, everybody knows them. And you put Bette Midler up to sing these songs, like, <laughs> you're you're going in the right direction, but you're still just missing the mark by a step or two here. Like, you should have just put them on stage. What's funny, because when they, like, introduced her as Miss B, I was like, Miss B, is that, is that Emily Blunt? Yep. Is that what we're talking about right now? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, I didn't yeah. know it was Bette Midler coming, so I was just taken aback by that. <laughs> right. And Bette, Bette Midler is great. I don't want the, the Bette Midler hide be coming after me after this podcast drop. They'll up. be in the comments. Um, <laughs> but like, for real, you have these two people who you could have just put out there and it's like everybody would have been tweeting about it. It would have been a big deal. And the engagement would have been off the chart. And they put Bette Midler out there. And it's like, just like a... a a miss by a little bit like okay Bette Miller's still great but you've had these other two and I feel like that's what how this award show just went like you were so close to like having like the right the right stuff for a lot of this and they just missed here and there enough to make it feel like huh maybe the academy doesn't really get it you know even thinking about how we're talking about the breakdown they had Laura Dern come out for five seconds to show this uh, museum they're building yeah. to the Academy. And I'm like, God damn, you got Laura Dern. I'd like got to go the... there, to be honest. But <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd like to check it out, but like, I'm I'm wondering how much different it'll be from any other studio tour at this point. Yeah, sure. Maybe a Hall of Fame, I guess. I don't know. Uh, am I going to be able to see Green Book next to all the other great winners? Like, We good on that one. Yeah. No, <laughs> I don't want... Yeah, don't, don't put them in the hall. But I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see how this one ages. You know, the, the ringer five-year Oscars, I, I think, aren't going to look too fondly on these results in a lot of ways. I like to see how well Klansman ages, because that's all in the same category for adaptive screenplay as Stars Born and Bill Street. Um, and everyone's really happy that Spike's first win. He had been nominated for Do the Right Thing in that cate- in the screenplay category before, but we'll see how that one ages. Just a great moment. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think... like. Samuel's joke about it, their embrace, his speech. We, we found out later he cursed in the beginning about not wanting to get cut off, which is which yep. is great. It's just genuine. And we like to see that from famous people who's you, we kind of uh, get to know from afar, obviously, as strangers. You know, I'm thinking, like, because all the Best Picture nominees won something, Spider-Verse won, Beale Street won, First Man won as well. What is, like, the best movie that was nominated that didn't win anything? Like, First Reform didn't win screenplay. It's one nomination. Quiet Place didn't win sound editing. 
Isle of Dogs didn't win. Mining the Gap didn't win. I guess that's the, po- the choice. There's nothing like obvious of stuff that was nominated. Cold War. Oh, that's right. Cold War. That's definitely the most nominated one that didn't win. Yeah, Cold War probably is one that comes to mind. Also, they, they didn't do a lot of those montages that they usually use nope, to film. just time. the first one in the beginning. Honestly, watching that, I'm just reminded how charming Robert Redford was. And the fact that Willem Dafoe got nominated over him, if you're going to give one of those two a nomination, like... Just give or it to Ethan Hawke, dog. Come on. Yes. Yeah. I, that. That's probably actually. That's probably the one that should have gotten more nominations. First and foremost. Looking back, I think that's not going to be a good, a good look for this one either. Overall, not bad though. Like uh, this, this felt like it was going to be a, a crash and burn scenario, and you know, maybe a couple of parts fell off the plane, but overall. Like, <laughs> decent decent show shout out the oscars i think that we're gonna look back on this at least in uh changing the way that they use hosts and utilize them moving forward any last thoughts on the show tonight or anything you wanted to shout out yeah i mean even though roma didn't win best picture quaron still won director of foreign film and cinematography he still got a lot of recognition also funny that netflix despite and i was just in la and i saw all the billboards which is really cool to see (laughs) in like west hollywood and stuff i saw netflix going hard for roma meanwhile they drop a teaser of sorts for the irishman in the middle of the broadcast yeah he's upcoming film we got that that tv spot for a lion king too so yep. which looks i mean gonna be incredible i was also hyped about that cadillac commercial that kept playing because it had me and your mama from donald glover gambino playing and i was like oh, i forgot how much i love this song yeah <laughs> <laughs> i had the same exact response every time i came out i was just like headbanging dun, dun, dun. Yep. <laughs> so good yeah overall a really enjoyable night However, Nostalgia Pod is not just going to be leaving you for the week because we got that True Detective finale. We had Jesus and Miro premiering on Showtime this past week. And we have a shitload of music to get to. So much. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't even gotten halfway through that Gary Clark Jr. yet. Got a lot to go on that. Hour 12, Doug. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, check check us out on Tuesday. Uh, Spread the love. Give us that five-star rating and review on iTunes. Let us know what you thought about this Oscars. I think it's one that people will be talking about quite a bit. We want to hear what what your thoughts are and and, uh, help us know what what to be bringing you uh, for the rest of the year. Movies in 2019. We got two huge movies that could both potentially be nominated next year in different ways. Uh, we got Star Wars Episode Nine, uh, Infinity War, and a lot of other like not as big Endgame. You mean? Uh, Endgame. I'm sorry, Endgame, and a lot of other small movies, but from bigger directors coming out. I mean, yep. we got what, Tarantino, Scorsese, like next o- 2020 Oscars. There's a ton. Yeah, gonna be nuts. So uh, we'll be bringing it all to you. Tune in, subscribe. We'll see you on Tuesday. What's up? And welcome back to Nostalgia Pod. We're giving you your weekly look what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheen. I'm here with my co-host, Dave Martinson. Dave, I hear that you went to a concert on Monday. Yes, sir. Saw Vince Staples for the first time. Actually, wanted to see him back in 2016, but Governor's Ball was rained out that day. I hadn't got to see him I since. Well. But really fun show. He was pretty quick. Just going song to song. Not a whole lot of banter. Did all the usual suspects primarily, but he... Did Blue Suede, which is cool. That was one of the older songs. Old was probably the old song he did. And it's funny when after at the end, uh, one of the food vendors outside was like get, talking to people. And he's like, "Yeah, that guy in there, pretty good, you know, kind of more of an old school flair, right?" Like I watched a little bit, and you can you can understand what he's saying. It's refreshing. And everyone was like, Ooh. "Yeah, yeah." 
Sure. Yeah, man. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. What, what song got the crowd going the most? He started off with Feels Like Summer, but I think the first one that really popped was Big Fish. Probably mm-hmm. like four songs in. Bag Back got a good reaction. Ended with North North and Yeah Right. And at the end, he's like, Boston, we'll be back. Maybe we won't. We'll see. Rest in peace, Mac Miller. Then he walks away. I'm like, all right, cool. That's cool. Because I remember he always cited Mac and Schoolboy Q as the artists that helped him become a good performer. And I will say he was a good performer, very energetic, didn't use a background track or anything, which is always great because I know a lot of rappers obviously do that when they're, especially when they're coming up. But then he set everyone out with Mac Miller's tiny desk on his video wall which was uh, really cool because like, everyone like stopped as they were walking out, turned around, pulled out their phones for that. So that was, that was a cool moment to end it on. And I will say his video wall was really cool. It's just a simple wall, but it was projected as all these different CRT TV screens, and they were effectively just different video feeds. A few of them were of the crowd. A few of them were of Vince. Other things were just various B-roll that would change and stuff. So it was, it was pretty cool visual. So yeah, overall, it was a, it was a really fun show. Nice. And Buddy opened up. I literally had just seen Buddy there open up for Ferg, but he was good again. So yeah, love Vince and really happy to finally check that one off. Well, it sounds like overall it was a great show. We have a lot of music to talk about today. So before we get too far into it, I just want to say if you're listening and you are not subscribed to Nostalgia, go to soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod and you can find any way to follow us, subscribe to us, listen to us, and give us that five-star rating review on iTunes. We appreciate all the feedback and support so we're doing a little bit of catch-up here we haven't really talked to music in a couple weeks been mostly uh, movie obsessed check out our oscar pre and post podcast but uh, why don't we start with gonna drip or drown two dave can you give me a little bit of background on gonna gonna actually had a pretty quick rise really started to get a lot of attention at the beginning of 2018 with drip season three which is as the name suggests only his third tape or fourth tape and uh, the song Sold Out Dates got a lot of love. And if you listen to Dripper Drown 2, you probably get a sense of what Gunna is. He's a Atlanta trap artist in the vein of Young Thug. He's actually signed the Thug, which is very ironic. And blew up more at the end of last year when his little baby cloud of project Drip Harder came out. That album did like 120 first week. Was a huge streamer. Drip Too Hard uh, was the big hit off that. And yeah, he just kind of rose quickly to the stature of little baby almost and dripper drown two is predicted to sell like eighty thousand first week which is kind of unexpected but that's quite a lot for just another mixtape of his kind of speaks to how many people are actually checking him out and i've never been too much of a fan and that certainly hasn't changed after listening to dripper drown two i don't know about you yeah i mean i'm not very familiar with him but i gave this a listen and nothing really stood out to me it seemed to be just kind of very homogeneous throughout and especially just the energy level didn't really ever seem to like jump out to me I'm about to talk about little pump in a second and i think gunner's a lot better technically than pump but i think that what pump brings on his albums is this sense of excitement and fun and even if it's ignorant and stupid it at least like gets you moving sometimes and gunner just kind of kept me at baseline the whole time i feel like i never really got going in one direction or the other what do you think yeah i agree i think it's weird because like there was the fun that meme the shack meme going around about him being way better on his features and <laughs> he had that one feature on metro's song that actually i think you know it's pretty good it's just weird because he definitely brings more energy when it's the only song you're hearing on the project of his one's feature but yeah I think it starts off decent, but then like the beats just get really blasé and the verses feel samey and it's like, all right, well, I've, I've heard all this before. It's not like he's going to 
enlighten me about anything. And if there's not enough energy, the beats aren't that cool. What am I really listening for? And like I've never been like the biggest little baby fan either. But after listening to this and catching up on all little baby stuff recently, I gotta say I think little baby's way more interesting. And yet they're both less interesting than Thug, which is the weird thing because like these guys are like selling more than Young Thug when they're clearly just his offspring when it comes to like what they do in rap. So it's kind of disappointing because I think Thug's way more interesting. But yeah, I, I think Dripper Drown 2, definitely skippable. I mean, even if you're a big Gunna fan, I, it, this has to feel disappointing. I, I don't know like what the big hit's supposed to be off this. Yeah, I mean, just looking at Spotify, I guess One Call and Speed It Up seem to be the, the songs that have jumped out off this. Outstandings on Rap Caviar right now. Take that as what you will. <laughs> yeah, it, but the thing is, he, he's got a hive, man. His sales are comparable to Offset's after this weekend, which is pretty crazy considering offset is an established group like migos i think gunna can probably bounce back and have a much better effort i think this is just just fell flat and sometimes that happens little pump though moving on to his next album harvard dropout what 2017 little pump his debut album comes out been jumping around as a i think he's the the flat water right so he's like fiji water and kanye's perrier or something like that when they, they perform i love it Is that right yeah i think so yeah <laughs> so i mean he's he's kind of just a, he's just stupid like <laughs> that, that that's kind of the the, the shtick right like harvard dropout he spells it wrong but now apparently he's giving the commencement speech to harvard graduates i don't know he's he w- he's probably one of the the soundcloud rappers that has come up and been successful but i think his his success is a little bit puzzling to people in terms of it's obvious that he's not great technically and just as a rapper i don't know if he's very skillful but he makes songs that are just kind of fun i think you hear a lot mm-hmm. of songs that are just kind of fun on this this album but i don't know if it's as fun as his debut what do you think yeah i think that's pretty spot on it, the music he makes now the music or he used to make they both like you said they're just kind of ignorant songs <laughs> he's only now 18 he was very young when he first started blowing up obviously with boss and d rose and then later with gucci gang and it's funny because he has slightly progressed like i feel like the hooks are a little more refined this time it's not you know just gucci gang gucci gang or d rose d rose d rose like there's a little more going on now given the bar was so low <laughs> technically but i think the beats are like less frenetic like they, they, they were they were like really like showy and energetic beats that really fit his like here's a new young florida kid and now you listen to Harvard Dropout, which is spelled wrong because of legality things with Harvard University, of course. And it's like, oh, it's a, it's almost like this is like more refined and thus less interesting because Pump's never going to wow you lyrically or technically. Thus, the beats need to be really fun and the songs just need to be dumb and ignorant. And the songs are still dumb and ignorant. I just think they stand out a little less because they feel a little more attuned to the rest of like that SoundCloud scene, which is funny because he doesn't really, because it doesn't really sound like the SoundCloud anymore. Like D Rose and Boss, like songs. I'm not really that big a fan of those songs, but you can't really knock like the way that that bass mm-hmm. hits. And even a song like Gucci Gang is just ridiculously catchy. And like a song that when everyone heard it, we're like, this song is trash. And then we're like, oh wait, this song's gonna be like number three in the country because you can't stop listening to it. And now on this new one, like I really like Butterfly Doors. But that also sounds less like other little pump songs. It sounds like other stuff. I just think it's actually like the, the beat's fun and his verses are fun. But other than that, I think 
it's pretty flat like i i don't there's some like i think my favorite songs on this apart from butterfly doors are when he's just being really stupid again Mm -hmm. like be like me or off white where it's like the hooks are ridiculous the punchlines are really dumb and he's just kind of doubling down on his shtick but overall i thought a lot of the songs this kind of left me wanting more songs like racks on racks songs like room 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 like it's tough when you waste like the beats that are actually good on this because like, the hooks stink or whatever but yeah i was moderately let down honestly even though i mean it's a little pump it's not like i'm asking for tim butterfly here but he's lean addled dyslexic various criminal charges yeah i just want him to be good still yeah i mean i don't really have a lot of thoughts on him because i've never really taken him very seriously as an artist um i mean kind of i don't i don't know if it's fair to compare him into kashi 69 but i see them both as just kind of like these like personalities in a way that use rapping as a vehicle for attention and i think pump is able to make songs that people at least want to listen to again like you said like gucci gang um, and i think there's a couple on here that i i would consider going back to i thought too much ice was pretty good you know quavo i thought was decent on that i love it for some reason is just like one of those stupid catchy songs that like you can just bob yep. your head to good verse from him yeah, i like his verse i think on he's that. A, that's actually a decent one and uh, see, what was the other one i had here that stood out oh yeah butterfly doors like you said i i think that that's a pretty okay song so he, I don't. I think he's obviously better, but he, really, he's just a, a vehicle for attention. He's not a serious rapper, and that's that's what he's going to be. And I'm I'm okay with that. Like let let Pump be him, and he can be stupid and ignorant. <laughs> and I'll check out his album every year, and I won't take much away. But I'll probably be like, yeah, that one or two songs is fun. That's where I'm at with him. Yeah, it, it's funny. It's projected to do like forty seven thousand first week, which is obviously way less than Gunna and Offset, and frankly, should be disappointing for him because. Given that Gucci Gang's huge hit, Esketit, was like 20-something on the chart when that dropped last year. He's a proven driver of streams. Butterfly Door's been pretty successful as well. You'd think more people would be checking out his album, considering they're listening to his singles. Maybe he's really, truly just a singles artist. I'm not sure. And now, if you're paying attention, he's selling like a... Like, you know how like Travis and Nicki did all these like things to game their, their album sales by like tour bundles or merch bundles, stuff like that? He's doing like an Esketit chain bundle right now that costs like $7, but it's bundled with the album. So we'll see how much that uh, drives the total sales for the week. <laughs> but he should be disappointed with that. I think you think his profile will be raised enough, the Harvard dropout meme, the blade roll. I don't know. I, I would be disappointed if I was him. <laughs> Something I wasn't disappointed by was the Higher Brothers album, Five Stars. We talked about and reviewed the 88 Rising, you know, collaborative album last year, and they were featured mm-hmm. on it. And I think one of their one of their songs on there was one of the ones that stood out to us the most. Nothing yeah, they're, yep. they're a Chinese hip hop group from Chengdu. They got four members: Masai, DZ No, Sai P, and Mello. And I mean, these guys go pretty hard. Not only in their sound, but like their music videos are these like ridiculous party music videos for the most part, except for. Um, one punch man which is just like this like karate movie basically pretty awesome they switch back and forth between uh Sichuanese and uh english uh, at different points throughout and that that can make it i think hard to follow at times but overall this is uh, i think a really strong effort from them and something that's going to catapult them into uh the american consciousness of rap which is really exciting especially because they had a lot of good features on here and they're already known but i think this brings them up to another level 
I see you nodding your head, so I'm guessing you like this one. Yeah, I thought this shit was awesome. Fire Brothers, they just make Chinese trap. Like, it's very simple. Like, they're clearly indebted to the current current trap scene here. Yeah, and, of course, they're I think they're pretty much based here now, like most of the rising artists. But, yeah, they, it, it's funny because, like, they bring kind of everything you want from, like, trap artists. There's four of them, but they all have great chemistry. They all can really take turns on the song, the hook, or the verse. And they have really inspired feature choices. Denzel Curry, Ski Mask, J.I.D., Schoolboy Q, great picks. And the beats are fun, but like they, they can just go hard on these songs, and they're just it's just really fun. And I think, I agree with what you said, uh, Rich Brian, Joe G, Higher Brothers, I think that's AD Rising. That, that's their core three right now, and I, I really hope this does well for them, because you know they had Black Cab and then the Journey to the West EP in 2017 and 2018 and didn't get like a ton of mainstream attention just kind of got like internet love and you know i think made in china was probably their one of their first hits because they they really started out really just making songs of mandarin but they kind of sprinkle in english and they sprinkle in a lot of english on this as well and i think also u.s listeners are more and more receptive to that obviously the rise of latin music bad bunny j balvin azuna songs that aren't in english do better here than they ever have i think that could certainly include asian artists so uh, i think this is uh definitely something that probably most people weren't aware of because like this doesn't get like a mainstream push or anything like 88 rising obviously is a indie uh, management label focusing on asian artists and they have like empire distribution but even empire is a pretty small effort in that regard so this probably wasn't on the top of anyone's release radar on spotify so i really hope people check this out as they hear about it but yeah, I was very happy with how it turned out. But, I mean, what did you think? Is I mean, you had probably just heard them on the collab tape last summer, right? You weren't mm-hmm. too familiar? Yeah, I mean, my, my impression of them on Five Stars is just that they go hard. They're, <laughs> you know, we talked about Pump, who uh, relies on just being fun and stupid. But these, I mean, from what I could understand of what they were saying, not only were the raps pretty intricate and, and meaningful in some sense in, in a lot of times, but the wordplay and the, and the flow between them was evident. There's a lot of chemistry there. And I think that they were able to make songs and use their features to, to really bring out the best of the people who are on the features with them rather than kind of just making them fit into their songs, which I thought was great. You know, especially like we already mentioned what One Punch Man, like Ski Mask and Denzel, I think sound awesome on that. Like, and it's such an energetic song. Like, oh, yeah. you kind of want to run through a wall after listening to it. I thought Zombie with, with Rich <laughs> Brian and uh, it was produced by Joji. I thought that song was really great. No More was a little bit more like R&B-ish, you know, Nikki uh, singing the hook on that, but also excellent. And then obviously Open It Up, which I think is one of the singles off of this. Is It's just them and they... They sound great on that that song. So they had all four of those songs jumped out to me. But throughout, I was like, oh, this is a pretty solid track. So nothing here to really hate. And I can only see them getting better. Um, I think my my only concern with them, kind of similar to a group we're, yeah, we're going to talk about in a second, is that uh, I could see them you know, probably branching out and doing solo work eventually. And it, it's hard to kind of hold these groups together. So as they keep rising, it, it, I could see them potentially not staying as the higher brothers yeah i think that that's a safe bet we'll see if 88 rising keeps them together maybe their status as foreign artists might slow mm-hmm. that as well but i mean yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't be surprised keep an eye out if they if you start seeing like solo features that's probably your first sign that it's at least possible but yeah i really hope this uh makes a big foundation for them but yeah uh very happy with this one for sure you know we, we alluded to offset why don't we jump to 
father of four. Yeah, <laughs> I don't really have a lot to say about this. I'll let you kind of set the table. Father of Four Offset's debut solo album, the last solo album of the Migo solo albums. Of course, we reviewed Quavo Hancho and uh, The Last Rocket from Quavo and Takeoff. And of course, Culture 2, which dropped at the beginning of last year. This kind of completes that run. We did it. And we made it. We did it. A lot of the, the streets were fed. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And often, obviously, he's been in the news a lot of the tabloids because we're his up and down relationship with Cardi B, to say the least. And she, of course, pops up on this. But yeah, when the prospect of the solo albums first started, everyone initially wanted the Quavo album the most. But then, like, the real heads were like, yeah, but Offset, he's really the best, Migo. He'll have the best one. I do think he had the best solo album mm-hmm. pretty easily. Uh, I don't think it's great, though. I think a lot of this Migos run, unfortunately, is just a little overstuffed. And just goes on a little too long. And when he does that, offsets good technical flow. You understand what he's saying. Goes hard most of the time. Still can get a little monotonous, right? Just like takeoffs, more lyrical, punchline-y flow can get a little monotonous when you've heard 30 tracks from him, right? So that's kind of how I felt about Offset by the end. But I, I think this is a pretty solid project and ultimately ends this run on a high note. I think this is better than Culture 2. I think and clearly better than the other two solos. My only hope, my hope is that they don't make Culture 3 this year. It's slow roll, slow down just a second. Uh, do features if you want. Offset's features are consistently pretty solid. It could have been shorter, but I think it's pretty solid. It's only Legacy, mm-hmm. Travis and 21. Always great to hear 21 verse, especially now, but his, his uh, streak continues pretty strong. And then I really like just solo tracks from uh, the original single, Red Room and Lick. I thought it was really cool too. Last Minute Cole feature on this. So I think there's a lot to like on this. But again, like as a project, as a body of work, it's uh, not the strongest thing in the world. But yeah, I think Offset, again, proved that he just probably brings the most to the table as far as Amigos members goes right now, at least as long as Quavo continues to phone things in. But I'm also happy to slow down with Migos for a little bit what about you it's interesting as as you're talking about what we expected from each one of them it's almost kind of like takeoff we were like oh you know what this is better than than I expected like you can tell he's kind of coming into his own and Quavo you're just kind of like okay he's phoning it in like we kind of know what to what we're expecting from all of them and I think that this album is kind of what I expected like it was solid album that was probably four or five tracks too long but that's kind of been the mo for migos since culture 2 dropped is that they're just gonna make these really long albums to get those stream numbers up and i think offset is pretty good on this i think there's a couple of good features cole i was kind of i mean he's been on a good feature run but i didn't think that this was his best one you know i actually i think gunna sounded better on wild wild west than he did on any of the songs on his album ironically classic gunna (laughs) but yeah legacy stood out it's always nice to hear cardi b um you know when she came in on cloud i was like okay like i I enjoy hearing cardi you know other than that nothing really too much i guess you're right probably red room um stood out to me as a a decent song off this but i'm just kind of bored with migos honestly i think you know i know that they want to stay in the consciousness keep getting that money i don't blame them for that but i think there's a little bit of migos fatigue for me i think probably for a lot Mm -hmm. of people they, they just kind of need a break so i i agree with your sentiment take a little bit of time make sure that culture three or whatever you name your next album has a little bit more substance to it a little bit more something to say because i do think that there's an uh, there they have more to offer than they have been but i think they're comfortable you know they know that this is gonna move move record it's gonna move money uh so 
why would they change it up? And I think that they can, I think they have enough clout at this point where they can take a chance and try something different and they're still going to get those numbers up. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking like, I'm not sure how much of this feed streets, stream, stream, streams onus is from them and also from quality control, QC, hmm. their, their out al- their label. Cause like QC, whole MO has been to do this with everyone. They did this with little Yachty. Little Yachty put out two bad records last year. Hmm. Well, Yachty, he's someone who definitely needs to focus on what he's good at, figure out what that is exactly, and then focus on that. Yeah. But he wasn't doing that. That was like, Yachty, put your shit out, man. It'll be fine. But no, it, it hurts your brand. And Migos, like, I, I just listened to uh, Offset do his uh, GQ always answered thing on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And Offset actually, he comes across as a pretty thoughtful dude, which is, you know, not what I expected because I never really heard him speak too much. But he's pretty well spoken like Quavo so it's like they're they're actually pretty smart guys and obviously they're, they've, they've been businessmen for a while now so I, I hope they could recognize that they got to slow down but I, I haven't really heard them comment on it one way or the other yet so tough to be too confident and as long as they're on QC and in terms of like the thoughtful tracks like I thought he started off really strong on the sound with father before the title track talking about all his kids and I like struggled being a dad a young dad being in that jail and stuff like that before he was famous all right, that, that that that's genuine, but he kind of loses sight of that throughout the album, of course. So, kind of like Quavo and Takeoff, for that matter, they 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 kind of like scratch the surface of like something more, but they kind of just fall into their old habits because they know they're they're reliable and will get listened to. So, you know, I really hope Culture Three or whatever it is is really solid because, unfortunately, Culture One is the best thing they've made, and there's been four Migos projects since since then that aren't as good yeah it's an interesting point how he really starts off the very thoughtful track on this and then by the third song lick tats on my face uh, is number four he kind of loses sight of that and it, it's actually you know i, I think a bit disappointing because you know he has his bro- uh, brother or cousin quavo I, I always forget cousin cousin he has his cousin on this who he came up with and became famous with he's got his on again off again girlfriend wife baby mama however you want to put it on a song and those are the, those two songs are clout and on fleek like you could have you could have leaned into like that more thoughtful sphere or you know concept with this and, and done an album that probably would have been more surprising and a little deeper but like i said they they keep with what they know and they know that those kind of songs will move so it is what it is someone that i think gave gave something a little different i think a lot different actually was our face meets ghost face um ghost face killer is our face you know producer seven l esoteric and inspected deck gave us you know they they dropped what was it is our face meets metal face last year yep wow. being last year with mf doom if, and they had a feels like forever ago four just our face albums before that mm-hmm. so they've been also feeding the streets yeah like migos just in a different way you know <laughs> i think the thing that stands out to me most of this is the production though 7l is chopping <laughs> i mean he is splicing in a lot of like especially like 90s i think uh content you know wwe stuff some tv some monologues some some voiceovers and i think that really adds an element and also the beats on this just go so hard and when you got ghostface rapping over them it, it kind of sets such sets your earbuds on fire a bit i really liked this album if only because 
we get a song called uh, Morning Ritual, which literally I was I was uh, on the bike at the gym listening to it, and I had to stop because I started laughing <laughs> just listening to it. I thought it was so ridiculous. But what did you think of this Starface meets Ghostface album? Yeah, I agree. I think the highlights are definitely 7L's beats. Um, and listen, see, li- listening to something like any of his Starface records, it's just really refreshing these days because obviously it's very old school and dead, right. especially this one where you literally have two Wu-Tang Clan members on it. Obviously, it's going to sound more old school as you're listening to technical rappers rap on non-traditional beats right mm-hmm. that is naturally going to stand out because there's just less of that being made right now so that that makes sense but i think that the whole like comic book theme that's been on all the Zarface records and obviously leads to the really awesome album covers they have i think that theme it is really cool because this lets for really obvious and easy but also fun and witty punchlines mm-hmm. referencing things when they come in and out, it's just fun to hear because again, not something that you hear super super mainstream. Even if things like Naruto and other comic book and manga culture is kind of all over all the young rappers now, it doesn't really float into the music too much. I think what kind of disappointed me with this uh, just a little bit was that like INS and Ghostface, I thought they were fine. I, I wanted to be wowed by the verses more. Like yes, they're they've been in the game a long time. Everyone here is an elder statesman, including Esoteric, but like. I don't think any of these songs are like super amazing. Like I really like Face Off. I liked uh, Listen to the Color. Um, Morning Ritual, he said, is pretty good too. But I think sometimes this could also feel a little samey in you know a different sense, an offset or a little pump. It's like, or gonna. It's like, even though they're you know technical and uh, tactical in their rapping, it can sometimes kind of just mold together mm-hmm. if... Uh, Nothing's really like rising above the pale to like stand out, whether it's a good punchline or like a really hot verse or something. So I think it's not quite as good as Zarface meets Metal Face, but it still has a high floor because it's technical and the beats just the beats still bump, and it's unlike most things here these days. So I just think it's absolutely worth hearing, for sure. Yeah, and it, I think like you said, um, and I alluded to at the beginning. Seven L's production is definitely the highlight of this, and you know songs like King Heard Voices and uh, Super Se- uh, Super Soldier Serum. I thought the beats on that were like literally earbud uh, in fuego, just crazy. You know, especially like King Heard King Heard Voices. It has this really hard beat, but then he brings the strings in to like create this like I don't kind of like spooky eerie vibe to it, and. Even though I agree that sometimes the rapping can sound kind of samey on this, there is something about hearing uh, Ghostface and Inspector Deck just like going in over this. Like I, I don't know, just mm. really, uh, it's really enjoyable. And I mean, I think I, I think I prefer that technical uh, kind of rapping to something like Pump, who we talked to talked about before, just because it, it, you at least feel like it's not causing you to lose too many brain cells <laughs> in that moment, <laughs> but. Yeah, I mean, overall, I thought this was really enjoyable. I would really recommend it, uh, if not nothing more than for the production. A couple weeks ago, before we knew that that you know that we were going to be recording on, on this Tuesday, which I think we were planning to record on Monday, we were like, yeah, we got a lot of music, got your detective. Something we weren't counting on was Kalani to be dropping an album. And she announced mm-hmm. that, I think it was last week, <laughs> just kind of out of the blue, like, hey, I got a, got a mixtape coming out for you all and this mixtape is titled while we wait which is appropriate in two senses i think we're all waiting for her to uh 
create her follow-up album to Sweet Sexy Savage from 2017. But she also made this mixtape while pregnant. And Mm -hmm. it kind of fits for her theme of she's waiting for this next stage of her life and for this this person, this little baby to enter the world. So pretty exciting. You know, I think if I remember right, you really liked Sweet Sexy Savage. I'm wondering, did yeah. you like While We Wait as much? Yeah, it's funny. I actually like been aware of Kalani like basically the whole time she's been an artist. Um, Cloud Nineteen, her first mixtape came out in 2014. Um, she's only 24 now, so do the math. She was very young when that came out. Um, and then her song "Fuck With You," which has a music video, that was like her first single. Really, I uh, really like that track. And then "You Should Be Here," her second mixtape in 2015, had uh, "The Way With Chance," which was also a pretty big hit for her. And I think I, I think I remember right because she's from the, she's from Oakland, and I'm pretty sure like G Easy was just bigging her up at the time as a fellow Bay Area artist, and that's how I came aware of her. But yeah, then she again kind of started getting a lot of attention quick. Uh, she was in a relationship with Kyrie Irving. Her song "Gangsta" Suicide Squad soundtrack was a gigantic hit. She had "Good Life" with G on the Fast and Fast Eight soundtrack, not a big hit. And then "Sweet Sexy Savage," yeah, I think that was probably her best tra- uh, project before this one, anyway. Uh, Something like Crazy and Distraction, really good singles. Mm-hmm. Really put those on at any time. Um, but overall, like as an R&B artist with some pop flair as well, I think she just kind of has always stood out in terms of like what she brings to the table. Uh, just kind of feels like a, a unique blend of, of those genres. And I think While We Wait kind of continues that sentiment, whether it's kind of tackling smart themes, uh, like Morning Glory, for example, on this, mm-hmm. where she's kind of talking about like, acceptance of like people's true selves and stuff through the guise of you better like how look in the morning mm-hmm. you know or we ain't doing yep. this like it, it, it's all just it's, it's pretty smart stuff and meanwhile it's really smooth silky mm-hmm. r&b tracks so i thought while we wait as a surprise effectively filler mixtape mm-hmm. right exceeded expectations for me for sure but I mean, was this like the first project first you'd really heard? Yeah, I think I'd given Sweet Sexy Savage a listen. I was at least aware of her songs from it. Maybe I'd listened to to it all the way through. And I mean, she's been in the consciousness. I remember Sweet Sexy Savage came out and there was a lot of buzz around it. And then when she announced that she was dropping this mixtape, I kind of felt like, you know, I know that she had made a couple of the singles like you that you had mentioned, but I felt like in a lot of ways she'd kind of taken some time off, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but she kind of fallen out of the public consciousness, I, I feel like, a little bit. And then when this popped up, I got pretty excited because I was like, I know that she's a really quality artist and she's going to make these R&B songs that are probably going to be at least nice to listen to. But I was really impressed with this album, or mixtape, I should say, because it not only did, was she able to make songs that I think were really catchy and fun, like Nunia, you know, but there's a lot of meaning in these lyrics as well. You know, like the the line on Nunia that probably um, like drove it home was you put on a show because you don't want the world to know that you lost the girl who got it on her own. Like mm. pretty, I mean, for a song that's pretty catchy, like she still is able to to drive home like the, her her feelings, the meaning behind it. I thought feels it's like this like pure R and B like pop bubblegum, which it's not necessarily the best song on there, but it, it just kind of gets stuck in my head every time I listen to it and. It's a lot of fun to, to listen to. And then Footsteps is an incredibly meaningful song. Um, uh, you know, talking about ending of relationships and um, kind of like leaving footsteps in the mud on her way out, hoping that the person would follow them. You know, she just is. It's really impressive how she's able to take a sound and make it sound pretty slick with 
the R&B that she chooses to use, but also make these songs that carry meaning and and thought have thoughtfulness behind them. And I think she's a really exciting artist. She's only 23, I believe. Yeah, she'll be 24 in a few months. Which is crazy, because I feel like Sorry produced a couple of albums that are pretty good, but I don't think she's anywhere near her peak. No. Remember last year when Rita Ora, Charlie XCX, BB Rexa, and someone else did that I Just Want to Kiss Girls, Girls, Girls song that got some backlash from the LGBTQ community. And then Kalani made a What I Need with Haley Kyoko as kind of like a response track, but more of like a here's like how real LGBT people think about these things, mm-hmm. not just the, oh, let me uh, decide to kiss girls and have fun with that for a time. Like, it, it was the fact that she could, like, pop that song out, like, real quick as a response. And, like, not like a, like a, fuck you guys, this is what I want to do, what we want to hear, but just kind of like a, like, here it is, listen to our track instead, you'll understand, like, where we're coming from. I thought that was, like, really just kind of showed, like, her strength in songwriting, you know, as someone who came out as queer and uh, has since become pregnant. But, like, she's kind of been, like, her sexuality and her, like, relationships have been kind of public. Like, her fallout with Kyrie did not go well. Kyrie has since apologized for how that went. But knowing what we know about Kyrie now, I'm not that surprised. (laughs) (laughs) But apart from all that, like, like you said, like, I think she just, she can really just kind of just drop in and make some, exciting music and meanwhile like we heard her on cardi b's album last year on ring a song that it's probably towards the bottom of most people's favorite tracks on that album but she can still bring like a pretty solid uh you know pop feature on that so i i'm really looking forward to her continued uh career growth and more i assume more features will come you know cause she's kind of hip-hop adjacent like you got dollar sign on this and she's got a lot of people in her corner i think having dom kennedy as the feature on nunya very inspired like i haven't heard from dom kennedy in a long time that's a nice that's a nice choice so yeah i mean for for a surprise album that's clearly leading up to another uh, a real true album probably the end of the year or something not 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 worth skipping that's for sure very impressed yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't expect an album from her for a little bit i mean she's probably been recording but i'm guessing yeah i think she's due to have her baby sometime next month so I think that right. might put a, a bit of a hold on things, but probably end of the year we'll, we'll be hearing from her again. Yeah. Someone I'm wondering it, how familiar you familiar you are with them is Gary Clark Jr. Yeah, I have never listened to Gary Clark before, but I've always kind of been aware of him. I believe he was at Governor's Ball one of the times I went. People had mentioned him to me as someone worth checking out. Of course, had some scheduled conflicts, so I didn't do that, but... When I saw this album was coming out, and I think it was originally supposed to come out next week, or, or, or Friday rather, but moved it up a little bit, and I was like, all right, I'll finally uh, jump in and see what this, this dude's all about, pretty much blind, I don't think I'd ever really listened to him before, and I was definitely impressed, but I mean, are you a big GCJ <laughs> fan? Like, have you seen him before? You know, I can't remember if I've seen him, I, w- I would bet I have, probably at Firefly, but if I did, I don't think it was something I was really like, up front for, I was probably chilling out for. Um, in the back but he's a really interesting artist so you know he's a really he's really well known for his live performances because he is just incredible as a guitarist and back in 2010 he was hand selected by eric clapton to um, perform at crossroads guitar festival after i think clapton saw him at like a smaller venue in, in texas somewhere and that really propelled started to propel his rise to stardom now 
this is his third album and his first couple albums black and blue from 2012 and then story of sunny boy slim they've gotten some notoriety he's he's blue so it's interesting you, know, you think about rock as a dying um dying genre of music in general and then you really think of blues rock as a dead genre of music so he's not really playing music that is very popular right now and i think on this land he tries to become a little bit more classic mainstream rock maybe even infusing some like soul r&b sound into it and i think he does all facets of it pretty well when he does make a blues song it's pretty good and he makes a classic rock song it's pretty good um and i think that he's willing to try things which I, I give him a lot of credit for i don't know if all of it lands but i thought overall this is a really solid album did you like it yeah i did like it and i was actually impressed with there's a lot of variety here and i was like all right this is 70 minute album <laughs> rock artist 2019 asking a lot but i think the variety as you spoke to made it a pretty refreshing listen and also the fact that generally speaking this guy goes fucking hard the guitar's the guitar is great, and frankly, we need more of that. And at least for my tastes, I like to hear this hard-ass rock. And <laughs> it's not like that's all he did, was just jam out the whole time. As you said, he kind of jumps in and around genres within the sphere, right? And I think like like a song like When I'm Gone definitely has like a more like a softer mm-hmm. hook. But then he can just follow that up with something else that's equally interesting, whether he uh, just jams more, yeah. you know. Uh, I was really impressed with the variety of hooks, the variety of his vocals, while also appreciating how consistent the guitar work was. So uh, as someone who was really unfamiliar with what actually was Gary Clark's MO, I'm uh, definitely a fan. I think this is probably, I mean, like I could, I can really see myself like slipping in Gary Clark Jr. songs within, like, a party playlist, and I haven't really felt that way about much rock music apart from, like, a few, like, Beth songs mm. and, like, a few other things here and there. So I think that in terms of, like, still being true to, like, rock music as its identity while also feeling, like, a part of the current moment, I think is not done often in rock right now. So I was very happy with it. Yeah, you know, I, I was actually pretty nervous about how this album was going to go when I heard This Land, the the title single, because it's, it's a pretty angry song talking about how Trump and, and the politics have affected immigration and just what it means to be a person in this country in a lot of ways, especially you know coming from Texas, Gary Clark Jr. is you know, kind of around a lot of the debate around the wall and things like that. And it also uses a little bit more like a uh, EDM sound to it, you know, or there's at least more electronics in it to produce it. Yeah. But then he really falls back more into his bread and butter, which is, um, you know, classic rock, soul, blues, and he does that really well, whether it's Pearl Cadillac, you know, you already mentioned When I'm Gone, which are more soulful songs, you know, Gotta Get Something Comes In. Uh, it's a pure, fast-paced, just like guitar-slamming song right from the get-go. Just makes you want to, like, again, run through a wall to bring back a phrase from earlier. But yeah, I think overall whether he's doing blues whether he's you know like like on uh, i think it was low low down rolling stone i thought it was a really good blues song he's able to move in and out of genres pretty seamlessly and he's just a really good artist i'm really excited to see what he does next and 
Um, I'm sure it'll be a couple of years before we get another album from him, but it'll be on some some features doing some touring. If you can see him at a festival or if you, a live show near you, I'd really recommend it just because he, he is a showman. Like, he's awesome lives. Check it out. Dave, that does it for us with music. I mean, seven albums. It's a lot to be going through. And probably the thing I was most excited for in these last two weeks is what we're about to talk about, which is Jesus and Mero back on Showtime. Bodega Boys in the building, dog. <laughs> The brand is very strong. Very strong. And, you know, they were, what were they on for? Vice? Viceland. Hey, Viceland. And they were, I wouldn't say kicked off, but they basically like broke their contract and decided to sign with Showtime. And then because of that, they weren't on for 10 months, nine months, something like that. Yeah. What did you think of their return? Yeah, I think it's kind of everything I, I think most fans, Bodega Hive fans would want. You know, it's... Jesus and Mero not compromising who they are or what they do well, but also kind of getting that Showtime bump, if you will. It's uh, like a real set that isn't being used by Viceland executives for meetings when they're not recording. That's nice, I guess. Has a live studio audience, which I think I, mean, I saw some comments that people weren't as big a fan of it. They just they preferred the the Viceland set where it's just like the producers and people laughing. But I think that live studio audience kind of makes it feel more. Uh, more big time more respectable right and mm-hmm. they have a bigger budget and you've you i think that shines through the most with they have a writing a real writing team now which is great you know i think again like legitimate late night shows have writers that's good um but also they're spending that budget on like skits and stuff out of the set and man did they pick a great one this week with the yeah. green book joke um super <laughs> on the nose and really funny and I think mm-hmm. that's ultimately the key with Deez Samero is the dudes have great chemistry and they're just fucking hilarious. And they're hilarious when they're just riffing. But listen to any of the promo they've done for this. It's just really fun because that's just how talented they are. But now they have people actually writing real jokes to their strengths. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just really exciting. And they've they've also said that they don't want this to just become a press stop where people promote what they're doing, which is unfortunately what every, everything else in late night is like right now. I mean, yes, you have like good segments like Seth Meyers closer look and like uh, you know everyone else their their bread and butters but I think Deez and Mara just focusing on them and having ghosts of uh, guests that are there uh, to be talk with them right I think that's mm-hmm. really exciting proposition so I'm uh, looking forward to the rest of the Showtime run because uh, they're definitely uh, uh, moving up and that's great yeah and I give them a lot of credit because um, obviously AOC is a rock star. Um, in politics but i didn't think she was a great guest on here you know she didn't me neither she didn't bring a lot to the table in terms of like humor um but it kind of allowed them to to keep their their stick and you know uh, i really thought like the fat heads and the things that they brought to like bring the bronx to dc was a pretty funny bit i think what they do really well and something that especially is difficult in late night right now is they make you feel like you're laughing with them um instead of laughing at something and um, I think that's why a lot of times people, I don't know, especially with like Colbert or even Kimmel in some way, they're, they are so politically based in terms of their uh, humor that it can feel just more tiring, like it's more just part of the machine. And they do a really good job of just, like you said, riffing and making you feel kind of like, like you're just sitting like in a bodega with them, just like shooting the shit. And it's really awesome. I thought the Green Book skit was awesome. They're just, uh, they're probably my favorite people in late night, hands down at this point. So, um, late night, I think, is kind of a uh, stupid, (laughs) 
for lack of a better term, like way to like look at TV still. Um, I don't know anyone my age that watches it or our, any of our peers that do, but you know, uh, if Jesus and Mara want to keep that as their lane, I'm all I'm here for. It. I'll be following them for sure. Any last thoughts on them before we move on? Yeah, I think the key to watch with them is most of their audience uh, was not really a Viceland subscriber. They were watching it on YouTube where the whole episode and all the clips will be clipped out after the show aired. Now, Showtime did put the first episode up on YouTube and they are going to do digital shorts like they do with all their shows. But it'll be interesting to see how much digital content they put out because that really is the success of late night these days is catching on with viral clips that catch on later. SNL is kind of the same way. But Showtime still wants you to subscribe. It's not like ABC, which everyone has already, you know? So I'm interested to see like where that goes in terms of like, do they drive enough Showtime subscribers for the show? Or do people largely sit back and just settle for what they get for free? Um, it'll be interesting to watch because they have a younger audience, which generally mm-hmm. does not uh, strictly subscribe for stuff just for one thing. But we'll see how well the fan base is. Definitely an interesting thought. Let's wrap up, though, uh, with True Detective Season 3. You know, this was, you know, we, we did the, the first episode or two that, that came out. First two, yep. And I think we were both cautiously optimistic about it. You, know, you got Mahershala Ali playing Detective uh, Hayes, who, you know, is uh, in three timelines, but is having memory issues in the last one as he's trying to figure out what happened in the case of uh, the, Pur- the Purcell children who went missing and, um, you know, one was found dead, the other one, Julie, was never really found. Uh, I thought this season was excellent and then fell totally flat in the finale for me. Um, you know, it's it's really funny. We talk a lot about how shows often, like, the penultimate episode is the best episode of the season. And I really felt that way with this, but I felt that way because it had been leading up with all these questions. There were all these, like, mysteries and uh, I kept seeing people saying, oh, this finale is going to have to be two hours long with everything that they need to tie up. And then the finale comes and it's pretty much just one guy sits and confesses. And then uh, Hayes has like this one revelation that there's probably some cover up and that's it. Like that was just uh, it. That there was this one twist and the twist. I don't know if I love. We'll talk about it in a second. But before we do, you're just your overall general sense of the season did you like it did you hate it what would you rate it <laughs> you're the best you're the best yeah i liked the season the direction it ends in was definitely something i did not see I think a choice people agree with that definitely a choice uh i think for what it was doing i think it was well executed just we'll see ultimately how the the temperature of everyone has with that in terms of that defying of expectations in the 11th hour how that uh leaves people because like i think Having just a monologue at the end where a character, ancillary character, explains everything to the audience and the characters. It's like you're watching that and you're like, oh, I get it. Like, and I, I don't know about you, but like right as they're about to talk to him, I'm like, I think I know exactly what happened. I feel like most people could piece it together before they get the confirmation. But it's almost a little anticlimactic in terms of like, you got all these questions and you kind of get most of them answered or addressed in some way. And yeah, it's not super satisfying for a show that's kind of been leading up to a mystery. You know, things like the peephole, um, the things like uh, Michael Rooker coming in for a scene as Hoyt. Yeah. Like a lot of these red herrings are, 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 are like uh, false flags in terms of like 
focus on this like even all the occult stuff in the beginning right yeah. the references the to being a pedophile ring all these things that actually were not true or didn't matter in hindsight done well to mislead the audience i just think that having it ultimately not be focused on the plot is interesting because it did feel like the plot drove a lot of the decision making even if the show ultimately was more about Dorf and Mahershala's you know relationship and uh Hayes relationship with Amelia but I think I think it's probably a season that'll age well and I'm really interested to see more of the think pieces on this just because it's definitely different than season one you know (laughs) Um, and season one had a backlash of sorts as well so you know I don't know how do you feel about that final stinger scene where it's like you know we get the 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 monologue from Hayes's wife's ghost literally (laughs) to hammer it home and like they meet and they get the flashback again and it's like they meet and they kind of just go off in the sunset it's like oh wait they didn't really split huh how about that relationships nice i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know i thought i mean it's funny because i guess in a sense the whole finale is a comment and this is something chris ryan of the ringer brought up a comment on um, conspiracy culture um and how right you know true you crime can, yeah, you can find all these different things and you can have all these conspiracies about things that are going to happen in the end. It could just be the the simple answer in front of you. And it, maybe it's not as deep or complicated. Or maybe there's not that bigger, you know, a cult out there that's that's driving things. But at the same time, it's it feels so disappointing and, and such like a unsatisfying last breath for the show, um, at least this season, just because like, you know, you, you had the whole thing about who are these ghosts and they spent so much time on that. Oh, didn't really matter. You know, Hoyt as this big bad looming and then he's just kind of like this, uh, I don't know, run down old man who, you know, had as much to lose as Hayes at that point and really is just like, I wasn't even around for this stuff. Like, <laughs> I wasn't involved with this. Yeah. I just was... Be straight with me. Yeah, blissfully ignorant in, in a lot of senses. You know, that, that last scene, I... <laughs> I thought it was interesting because I, I never really I found myself I think a little bit more interested in the the case rather than their relationship. So then for that to be the the centerpiece felt a little bit of a strange choice. But I guess probably upon a rewatch, maybe I would be more interested in their relationships. I do think Dorf kind of comes out of this as the big winner because what while Mahershala I bet will probably I, I said at our post Oscar spot I think he'll probably win an Emmy for his performance. Dorf I think is the one that stands out as giving the most surprising and the best performance overall. Mm-hmm. I thought his, I actually thought his fight scene was pretty interesting there at the end. You know, I'm try, still trying to make sense of, I guess like, like the stray coming up to him afterwards and what he was really getting out of all this. Mm-hmm. It, it's very metaphorical, I guess, just like wanting yep. to, um, you know, being the stray, this person who's alone and, um, wanting to protect Hayes and, and other people all the time, you know, the way he kind of took care of, uh, the Purcell dad as well. So, I don't know the the season. I think I would probably would need to to read a little bit more about it and think about it a little bit more. But overall, I thought that, that this was a great return to form for it uh, after a season two that was problematic and laughable in a lot of ways. Yeah, I agree. Um, Scoot McNary continues his character run on TV, um, quickly becoming one of the best guys out there. Unfortunately, uh, he as Tom Purcell got a lot more to do. Then uh, Mamie Gummer got as Lucy. That's a bit of a 
pitfall for Pizzolatto usually, but I did think Amelia was a very interesting character, especially because mm-hmm. we never really were quite too sure where she was going for most of the season, and definitely a step up uh, from uh, Detective Wife mm-hmm. that uh, Mich- Michelle Monaghan, I believe, played in season one. You know, it's a definitely a more well-rounded character this time around. And I think, you know, the comments on true crime in terms of what her character did as, you know, writing the book and whatnot, uh, I think it's pretty interesting as kind of like a commentary that's a little separate from everything else going on in the show. Um, yeah, ultimately, I I, I, I think it, it's it's uh, more artistic than I expected in turn because, again, the plot really became secondary by the end. And then ending with that you know, Vietnam scene at the end and, and like having him just walk into the bush and really as they started playing with the timelines and uh, Hayes's Alzheimer's or dementia and having to come in and out, you know, I think it's done really well. It's just you have to kind of let go of the conspiracies and the, the mystery hunting that uh, you might have been attached to as you're watching the season. And they really get you again at the end when they, ref- they actually show you a picture of a Russ Cole and Woody Harrelson from season one, and you're like, "Oh, here we go! Yeah. Connection to the pedophile ring. Maybe Woody will show up or something." No, no, not, nope. not at all. Actually, <laughs> fooled you. Well, <laughs> did did you like that ending scene where he walks into the brush in Vietnam? I think that scene's really artistic. The scene I liked a little less was right before where uh, Amelia and Wayne. Mm-hmm kind of reunite and just kind of walk off into the sunset together yeah what did you think of the twist with julie once you know it it's kind of like oh okay mm-hmm. i think in hindsight though it's well done because you're really set up to think that she was abused or perhaps sold into sex trafficking or something bad right mm-hmm. and you realize that no it was actually this this disturbed woman who wanted to be a mom to someone right and it's like i don't know if anyone really got there when they first see the the, the hint of the pink room when scoot discovers it before he gets axed yeah something ultimately it was pretty well just i don't know if having the one i do just kind of deliver everything in a monologue to these old guys masquerading as cops I, I don't know if that's the strongest way to go about the reveal but yeah I, overall I, I liked the the misdirect in terms of how the story actually went shout out my favorite uh line of the year um where steven dorf called him a, a cyclops motherfucker <laughs> yeah, just the way he delivers lines is so good in, in this uh, this show yeah overall i thought this was a good season um, a lot to think about with the final episode if nothing else you know even if you're disappointed with it it's at least it's they made a lot of choices and it's at least something that's interesting and thoughtful so um you know, I would highly recommend True Detective Season 3 to anybody that likes Season 1, or if you, for some reason, like Season 2 as well, uh, definitely check it out. Um, I think if you like Season 2, you probably will like this a little bit less, because <laughs> I think what Season 2 does is not even close to uh, as coherent and uh, thoughtful as this one, so... Uh, any last thoughts on anything we talked about today before we wrap up, Dave? Uh, no, not really. Got some... Uh some stuff coming out i know better things is back on fx the reviews say it's better than ever of course that's pamela adlon sans louis ck now leaving neverland that michael jackson doc got some attention at sundance especially in light of what's going on with r kelly right now that'll be out on hbo this weekend so i think those are especially leaving neverland would definitely get a lot of attention next week i'm sure 
And then Music Front, nice little diverse slate. Little Sims, UK rapper, 2 Chains, rapper go to the league, and Hozier, mm. Wasteland Baby. So definitely check out those records. But this is the week before Captain Marvel, so movies are a little lighter. And I know HBO doesn't really have anything going right this moment, but TV will start to pick up again in March. So we'll have plenty to talk about, like always. Captain Marvel reviews are really good so far. Really looking forward to that. Um, so please subscribe to Nostalgia. So when we review all those things in the future, you get it first. So go to SoundCloud.com slash NostalgiaPod and uh, hit that subscribe button on all of them. Give, a, give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. We love you. We appreciate you. We will see you next week. Peace out. Peace out.